March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Check out season one of Empty Frames for a 12-episode dive into the Gardner heist. This season, we will be exploring other art crimes and significant moments in the art world before returning to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown with Lance. Lance, how are you? I couldn't be better. How are you today? I'm doing great. We talked to an old buddy of ours, Paul Turbo Hendry. Yeah, we were introduced to Turbo back in the first season of Empty Frames. He came on and introduced a new policy, a new return policy for the 13 pieces of art uh, to be returned to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. We presented that through a change.org campaign and uh, gathered signatures, which will then go to the mayor of Boston. Turbo's an interesting guy. He goes at such a pace that you just sort of jump on and you 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 ride the conversation and you let him drive. And it, right from the get go, it's it's pretty apparent that he's he's starting and we just got to keep up. Yeah, it's a lot of fun talking to Turbo. And if you haven't signed this petition for an itemized Gardner reward price list, please go to change.org and sign it. It is also in the show notes, and you can click the link there and go sign up. So this conversation, Lance, we kind of cover an interesting topic that we cover that we talk about a lot in season one. It comes up often in doing what we do with this. And it's the idea that there is this rich person out there sipping brandy, looking at their personal art collection by themselves because all the art is stolen. Yeah, there's this world of these people that we've titled Dr. Knows because it comes from the James Bond movie where you have a similar villain character. And this is uh, an echelon of person that is beyond our comprehension as far as wealth is concerned. So these Speak people... Speak for yourself. Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I, I understand there's a lot of gravity on the other side of the table here. Turbo brings up this Dr. No character and we explore that in season one and we explore it you know, even off of the show and it it really is such a fascinating concept that these Dr. No characters do exist because you initially hear there's no Dr. No character out there, but there are. Well, I would say it's it. you first think, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, there's rich people out there. They're drinking brandy. They're sitting on their yachts. They have these stolen paintings. And then when you learn a little bit more about it, it's like, well, actually, that kind of doesn't seem super likely that there's these underground rich people, like unknown and things like that. But here's the twist. We actually do know a lot of the Dr. No people. They're people that we have heard. They're artists. They're like Steven Spielberg, for example, is one of the people we talk about as being a possible Dr. No type. Sure. So you have different categories that Turbo gets into. You have the Steven Spielberg type. You have Boy George was the other one, which was really interesting. Those people return the, the stolen artwork and they... They do not. They 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 get it through an auctioneer, and it's it comes to comes to light that this thing was stolen. But there are other people that Turbo gets into who do do operate on a more underground level, and that's really fascinating. And he, we 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 go to different topics, but really, the Doctor No stuff is is the most fascinating. Okay, so we hope you enjoy it, and follow us on Twitter at empty underscore frames, and subscribe on Stitcher Premium. Why don't Why don't you go to stitcher.com slash premium, use code frames, and you get a free month on Stitcher Premium. And then your subsequent months are four ninety nine, and you don't just get our shows. You get a ton of content there. There's a ton of comedy content. You get a ton of extras from other true crime and other genre podcasts that you love. So it's it's a it's well worth the small amount of money that you'd pay a month. All right. So here is the interview with Paul Turbo Hendry, and we jump right into it. And we are talking about our episode three with Asia Romano, talking about Banksy. to achieve is financial security, notoriety, 
and a kind of street cred, which is virtually impossible in any other genre. You know, he's done extremely well out of portraying himself as someone who objects to everything about capitalism, but in the end is the perfect capitalist because he's selling a product on the basis of I'm against everything, but I'm profiting from that. I think it's fair enough. Good luck to the man. I, um, I also loved his um, dismal land um, where he had the, um, you know, the version. And again, the commerciality of that, um, again, demonstrates that um, by being a sort of anti-hero, you actually, uh, you almost become the hero be uh, by the very nature of that. Yeah, that's very well put. And we were trying to wrap our heads around it when we were speaking with Asia Romano. And we, we, we wrapped our heads around it. Then we got our heads all tangled again. But you put it really well when you said that he is, he is anti-capitalism, but ultimately, even when he destroys his work, he is profiting and benefiting from it in a capitalist way, which is sort of him giving the middle finger to the whole thing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with that. I mean, you know, um, and I think, I mean, it's, there, there is a place for that in the genre um, of art. We've seen it historically, but when we look back on them and reflect on those people, they don't have such an impact as something like Banksy does today. In 50 years' time, someone would look back at Banksy and would regard him probably as mainstream or wouldn't, re uh, um, wouldn't realise the impact that he had. That's true. Yeah, I think that uh, claiming him to be mainstream uh, years from now, I think, is is right on the money because he's so popular. Uh, and it's hard to differentiate between mainstream and popularity, even if you are kind of giving the finger to it. Yeah, of course. I mean, to be honest, I mean, if we look back at, say, Andy Warhol at the time, cutting edge, Bob Dylan, you know, cutting edge, you know, they were going to change the world. And in many respects, they did. But when we look back at them from, say, to 2019, that we're looking back on uh, those people as mainstream. Yeah, that's that's accurate. They were also very much a product of their time, and they they took advantage of that time frame. Like Banksy is, takes advantage of the time frame now, heavy heavy uh, commercialism, heavy capitalism, and he's, he's you know the whole 99 percent and the one percent. He's taken advantage of of his time in history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so, yes, exactly. I mean, renegades always end up um, becoming the thing that they fight against in the first place. I mean, you know, in lots of ways, you guys are renegades. But, you know, as you become a more global product, you know, um, perhaps people will be more accepting of that. And then you may even find yourself self-censoring or tempering down to fit into that kind of wider arena. I mean, lots of people, politicians start off saying, I'm going to change the world, get there and then realize that they can only do certain things or are only allowed to do certain things. Well, you, sir, are also a renegade. You started off as one thing and you turned into almost the thing that you were rallying, I guess, for lack of a better word, against. Is that is that pretty accurate? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to be honest with you, there was two ways to make it in my neighborhood, the right way and the fast way. And to be honest with you, the fast way was very attractive, especially with the narcissism of the 1980s, which um, today is mainstream. You know, I mean, the narcissistic side of human nature is is quite dominant, especially in Western society. So we had you on our first season of Empty Frames to talk about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, and you described a little bit about what you did in your past and your your history in the art community. Just a quick refresher. What is your past and, and what do you do now? Well, um, I came from a poor family in Brighton on the south coast of England. Um, and at a young age, I went out on the knocker, which is calling on householders' homes to try to buy antiques at a fraction of their value um, or to perhaps send back burglars to steal those antiques for, for me. I moved swiftly up the ranks and by the age of 21... I was one of the biggest handlers of stolen art in Europe and sending things to America and exporting those things. I continued on, got to the top and then retired. Uh, when my son was born, I then went to university and got a BA honours degree and a master's degree. Um, and I now spend my time as a kind of firewall between the underworld 
and law enforcement insurers and victims and just try to offer my opinions and try to resolve situations um, in an amicable way um, that makes everyone a little bit happy rather than, say, one side completely happy. You sound way overqualified to be talking to us right now. Oh, I don't know. No, 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 no. <laughs> For the second time. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, um, at the end of the day, you know, I'm a good organizer. I can get things into play. But at the end of the day, there are people who are called finishers. Um, you know, I can bring golden nuggets to the table um, or I can bring a diamond to the table, but it's up to someone to polish it and turn it from a rough diamond into a sparkling diamond. So like my ideas with the Gardner Art Heist, um, you know, I had those ideas and, and it needs someone to, to, to take those ideas forward. Um, and it, the, the proof of the pudding will be the recovery of some of the Gardner Art if they issue a Gardner Art reward price list. That's right. So if you're out there and listening to this and you haven't signed this petition yet that is asking for an itemized reward list for all the stolen items of the Gardner heist, please sign this petition. It is in our show notes, very easily accessible. So what have you been up to since uh, we last spoke? Well, um, to be honest with you, I've been trying to lobby as best I can certain people um, to actually just consider the idea of the Gardner Art Reward price list. Um, I've also been floating ideas about um, perhaps possible private um, involvement in trying to recover the Gardner Art by way of, say, a billionaire philanthropist who could perhaps put up a private reward, um, which could... Uh, take, say, the government out of this. You know, at the moment, the Garden Museum reward combined with the FBI, it's almost like a government program. It's big government. So perhaps it would take the private sector to offer a reward without any conditions from a billionaire philanthropist who would love to see the Gardner art recovered. That may appeal to those people who have or control some of the Gardner art. That's a pretty compelling idea. That is a very high-level idea, and very ambitious and impressive. Uh, the current signees for the change.org campaign to bring the Gardner art back, that's up to, I believe, 105. And we're going to try to get to 200. And this is going to be delivered to the mayor of Boston to see if he can implement some sort of change there. And it really is spearheaded by, by, by you, uh, Turbo. Well, yeah, okay, but at the end of the day, you know, it takes more than one cook, uh, more than one chef, you know, to cook, you know, cook the cake. Um, but the, the whole, the whole thing is, is that at the end of the day, I just want a debate. You know, I want the Gardening Museum to actually debate why they haven't issued a Gardener Art Reward price list. I want to debate whether private involvement could ease the way because of the burdens of office that the Gardener Museum has, the FBI has, perhaps take it out of their hands to a private sector where people can just hold their nose, allow some Gardener Art to, to surface and a reward be paid. Um, you know, it, those are the kind of things that I'm actually looking to try uh, to get implemented. But as I say, it's just having the debate. And I can honestly say, universally, everyone I've spoken to about the Garden Art Reward price list says that it's a wonderful idea. And they cannot believe that it hasn't been implemented before, although I had been lobbying for it for decades now. It is a bit of a head-scratcher why it hasn't been lobbied uh, like this before and even considered when it is such a good idea. It is, a, it is a really good idea if there is any genuine desire to get that artwork back. But there are many, many factors in this. And, and uh, this is not a criticism of the FBI, but what they've done is they've taken advantage of the Gardner case and they've weaponized the Gardner case and used that against serious criminals to bring them to trial, to jail them um, and to try to pressure them. But it's almost been like a weapon the FBI has used in crime fighting. Now, I'm not criticizing that. Unfortunately, what that has done, it's driven the Gardner art further underground. Since we last spoke, Paul, there was another podcast that had happened about the Gardner heist. It was called Last Scene. And uh, just curious about your thoughts on that. Um, it's a highly polished, professional podcast series um, that you would expect when it has the backing of a huge television network and um, the Boston Globe and money wasn't um, um, a factor in it. Um, they've um, attempted to 
tell the story as many others have. Um, and, that, you know, obviously there are things that they've missed out and that, that were on the cutting room floor. And I think it's perfectly um, legitimate, acceptable, and it was it was easy listening, and it's and it's got out to a very wide audience. And I wish them the best of luck uh, with it. Um, the only thing that I would say is that by their own admission, um, they had to self censor um, because they were following really the orders of the museum um, the, uh, and you know obviously the owners of the Boston Globe um, and the television station. Did they contact you for any contribution to their series? Yeah. Um, yes. Um, last Scene podcast contacted me um, and I gave a full interview to Kelly Horan um, about the Irish connection um, and, and, you know, and, and other things on the Gardner case. Obviously, that, um, that hasn't um, been aired or I don't know whether it ever would be aired. Um, th- there is a problem. Um, um, Kelly Horan, Steve Kirch and all of them at last scene think that the Gardner Art Reward price list is a very, very good idea. Um, the only problem is is that that, that um, is having the courage to actually address the issues of reward and immunity. Now, whatever the reasons are why they've not been allowed to do that thus far, I honestly can't say. That's interesting that you were not given the opportunity to hear your interview on one of their episodes. I'm wondering what that what the purpose of that was, whether you don't fit into the narrative of where they were going with that season, or maybe you said something that perhaps hit a little too close to uh, a more controversial note. Um, well, first of all, let's be fair. The episode that it would have appeared in on the Irish connection hasn't been aired. So um, the other, there are other contributors on that, um, which Kelly Horan has said in public, there's Charlie Hill, the ex-Scotland Yard detective, she went to Dublin. They followed up on the Irish lead. So they haven't aired that episode. So so, so, so I haven't been on, um, not least because they haven't aired that episode. And they may do in the future, in the new year. Um, you, you know, um, I think they're going to do something on the Whitey Bulger killing. And that may actually um, mix in and segue into the Irish connection. Yes. But as I've said all along, it really doesn't matter who has this, uh, the gardener up. Who has the gardener art or who controls the gardener art? Uh, until there is a pathway where those people feel secure that they can hand back the gardener art and get paid a reward, we're never going to get any movement. You mentioned Whitey Bulger's murder. Uh, do you think there was any gardener heist connection in, in that? No, I don't think there was any gardener heist connection. I think it was a case of... Um, I don't know. Um, um, I don't know what's that Latin for who benefits. And you ha- actually have to say who benefits from the Whitey Bulger demise. Um, and um, the system benefits because it doesn't have to pay for the incarceration of Whitey Bulger. However, it does nothing for potential informants in the future coming forward to help authorities because if they feel that all of a sudden doesn't matter how long it takes, someone is, you know, that they could be murdered, it may prevent people becoming informants in the future. I mean, and factually, someone like Robert Muller actually benefits because Whitey Bulger could have made accusations, true or not, which could have proved embarrassing to Robert Muller. Okay, now I'm not saying anything at all whether there was any validity to what Whitey Bulger may accuse Robert Muller of or may not of. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's um, it's it's a potential stone taken out of the shoe of Robert Muller. Well, we've seen some other people uh, accuse Muller of things that definitely aren't true. So uh, I'm not sure where to where to leave this one. Yes, exactly. I mean, to be honest with you, it's um, um, it's a terrible thing. Um, At the end of the day, as a society, you put people in prison for the rest of their lives. You don't throw them to the sharks. And that's, you know, that's what a civilized society does. You know, I mean, of course, when terrible people, if anything happened to any of our family, we would want those people to suffer horrendous death. But society has to rise above that and actually say, you know, this is the penalties that we um, uh, provide. And if the man is going to go to jail for the rest of his life, to throw him to the sharks 
is not a reflection on a civil society. Now, there are characters in a civil society who we touched upon when we interviewed you for Empty Frames. These characters we've been talking about are known from the James Bond film as Dr. No, the Dr. No characters. And there's this concept out there that perhaps the artwork from the Gardner Museum is located in some remote island with this Dr. No character swirling his brandy and looking at the storm on the Sea of Galilee. After we spoke to you, we continued an email correspondence and even the occasional Skype chat about your experience with these Dr. No characters and your knowledge of them. That's how we really want to frame this episode Talk about these people who are either underground, they're extremely wealthy, maybe they're in the spotlight, but they do acquire these stolen pieces of artwork simply to sit and swirl their brandy and look at them. Well, I mean, that may be a stretching it a little far to actually accuse these people of knowingly purchasing stolen art. What we can say with authority is that very wealthy, famous people have been caught in possession of stolen art. You know, and I can run down the list, you know, a quick list. You know, Steven Spielberg, Baron Heine Thiessen, Giovanni Versace, Boy George, Vladimir Putin, Oleg Deripaska, and yes, the Adlers who had the de Kooning, because they stole it, they hung it on their wall, their wall just because they didn't have a, a desert island doesn't mean that they didn't didn't have the Doctor No effect. They didn't try to sell it. Doesn't mean they didn't have brandy. Metaphorical, yeah, exactly. Metaphorical desert island. Metaphorical brandy. They were sitting actually at a Thanksgiving table, swirling their apple cider. If you want to say there that that's go. what they were drinking. But you see, that's yeah, that's the whole point. You see. Um, also, I can go on. Shelby White. Antiquities is another big thing. Um, Shelby White. Um, um, Leon Levy. Um, Adnan Khashoggi, the Marcuses, um, you know, I mean, the list is endless. Now, I've come up with the scientific theory about Dr. Nose, and I'd, I'd be interested to give uh, let, let you hear it. We love science. Love it. Right. OK, right. Well, it's it's a known fact that the that, that authorities say roughly they re, um, they managed to intercept about 10 percent of drugs. That, that is smuggled into countries, i.e. the United States. They managed to stop about 10%. The recoveries of stolen art are around about 5 to 10%. Okay? The, the interception of, say, arms and weapons, roughly 5 to 10%. So if you apply that to famous wealthy people that have been caught in possession of stolen art, you can come up with around, say, 25, 30 names historically. And if that is 10 percent, the actual figure could be two, three, four hundred very wealthy people worldwide who actually have got stolen art in their collections. And also, I would say that that figure is increasing because of the emergence of the billionaire class in Eastern Europe, the billionaire class in Asia, and particularly China, where a lot of Chinese billionaires are buying back Chinese artworks that were exported to the West and sometimes looted from places in China during uh, the colonial times. And they're looking the other way and they don't care about provenance. That's a pretty interesting point you're making here, uh, Paul. Um, let's talk some specifics, though. Uh, you mentioned uh, some names. Steven Spielberg. Can we start there? What uh, what what stolen artwork did he was in his uh, possession? Right. Steven Spielberg is an aficionado and an expert on the American artist Norman Rockwell. And in 1989, he bought a Norman Rockwell off of the um, the the art dealer Judy Cutler for two hundred thousand dollars. Judy Cutler had bought it at auction for around about $76,000 or $50,000. And she sold it on, as a dealer would, for three, four times what she paid. Because that's the normal markup, okay? So if you go into a, an art gallery and, and give $1 million for a, a, an artwork, as soon as you leave the art gallery, it's worth $200,000, roughly. So that's the kind of markup. Fast forward, the FBI 
put on their website the said picture, Russian schoolroom, as being stolen in 1973 from an art exhibition when it belonged to an art dealer called Jack Solomon, who had been paid out by the insurance company. So now the actual rights to the painting belong to the insurance company. Allegedly, when one of the staff of Steven Spielberg managed to come across this on the web and realised that it was Russian schoolroom by Norman Rockwell that was hanging on the office wall and contacted the FBI, who duly arrived and said, yes, it's the original, and took it away with them. What then happened was quite interesting. Judy Cutler, who had sold it to Steven Spielberg, replaced it with another Norman Rockwell for Steven Spielberg called Peace Corps in Ethiopia. And then she took on the ownership and the rights to Russian schoolroom. Okay, so Steven Spielberg was out of the picture. The FBI were fine. They were satisfied. What then happened was a court case brought by Jack Solomon, the original owner, who'd been paid up by the insurance company. And the judge found in favour of Judy Cutler and handed her back Russian schoolroom. And it now sits at the National Museum of Illustration in Rhode Island, which is run by Judy Cutler and her husband. So if you want to go and see that painting that was stolen, uh, that Steven Spielberg earned, it's in Rhode Island at the National Museum of Illustration. Now, there's no suggestion that Steven Spielberg knew it was stolen uh, on, uh, you know, or knew anything um, along those lines. But it's an occasion where someone who's uh, extremely wealthy, powerful and famous is caught in possession of a, of a high value stolen artwork that is publicly available to see that he's stolen. I mean, it had been on the FBI's art wanted list for quite a considerable time. I want to go back just a little bit to Judy Cutler and how she would have acquired this painting that was stolen, you said, in 1973. And then sold to Steven Spielberg in, what what year was it sold? Uh, in 88? 1989. 1989. She bought it, yeah. She bought it at an auction in New Orleans in 1988. It's, okay, so th that's the timeline. Okay, this is this was... Uh, yeah, this you know, is the what, yeah, the yeah. timeline, stolen in Missouri in 1973, reappears in 1988 at an auction in New Orleans... And sells to Judy Cutler for fifty-six, seventy thousand dollars. And she has no idea that this is a stolen painting. No, 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 no. Again, she's an expert on um, Norman Rockwell, um, one of the world's leading experts, and so would know every painting that he painted. But, but no, no, no. She perhaps didn't know, and she bought this for, and then she quadrupled her money the following year and sold it to Steven Spielberg for $200,000 in 1989. He duly hangs it on the wall of his office, apparently. Okay, so I don't want to speculate, but it made me think that perhaps this is something that art dealers will do. Have you ever encountered a situation, and we can get back to Steven Spielberg in, in one second, but have you ever encountered a situation in your experience where a painting is stolen by somebody who plans on buying it later on, much later on, say 15 years later, in order to triple their profits on it. So if you see a painting and you're a dealer, you con you contract somebody to steal that, we're going to keep it under wraps for 15 years, and then we're going to just buy it at this. It's going to pop up at a random auction sometime later, and, and I'm going to buy it for a steal and sell it for a crazy profit. Have you? Is that something that exists, or did I just make that up? No, um, I mean, I, that does exist, but but let's make it clear that this is certainly not what happened in the oh, Steven Spielberg, Judy Cutler. No, no, but let, let's make sure there's no inference on that whatsoever. However, yes, that could possibly happen. Also, a dealer could see something coming up in an auction that, and knows it's stolen, but feels that the protective cloak of the buying at an auction, there are laws in places like Italy where if you buy a painting at auction and have a receipt uh, of, of buying it at auction, you gain legal titles. So I think your theory would apply in Italy. It wouldn't apply in the, it wouldn't apply in the United States. But what I would add 
selling the painting for three, four times its value is a normal process on buying, a, you know, a legitimate painting, a stolen painting um, or whatever. And also you have to remember, we're talking about a different era now with, you know, there's no excuse for due diligence today with all the electronic resources everyone has. There's no excuse for anyone purchasing any stolen artwork and then trying to say, I didn't realise it was stolen. And I'd say we should start that from the 1st of January 2019. Anyone caught with stolen art they bought after January the 1st, 2019, right, cannot have done due diligence. Ignorance is no excuse, even if you directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Jaws. And Jaws. Exactly. Well, having said that, you know, he's made, um, put it this way, over a long distinguished career, um, there's been some incredible blockbusters and there's been some, you know, good, bad and indifferent. Yeah, actually, I, I was wondering about that. I wonder, like, did someone once tell Steven Spielberg, he's like, hey, you know, you're kind of the Norman Rockwell of uh, filmmakers, American filmmakers, because in a way he kind of is. Each movie he makes sort of its own slice of Americana. Yes, I, yeah, and I think that comes from his background, um, uh, as a child when he grew up in Lookout Mountain, you know, and the community that he grew up within. If you look at that community and what they've gone on to achieve, um, there is something quite unique there, shall we say. Do you think that or do you know that Spielberg has a lot of other um, paintings that he's purchased? I guess my, my point is, if he brought this stolen one to the office, how many other ones like paintings are at his house? How many of those could be stolen, perhaps? That's the $64,000 question, of course. And to be honest with you, as technology moves forward, the excuse of that I didn't know. See, because you have to remember, look, it's human nature that everyone likes a bargain. Everyone likes to feel that they bought something cheaper than the actual value of it. OK, now, also, why do we put these people on pedestals that they go from, say, no money to becoming billionaires? And the minute they're a billionaire, they um, obtain this kind of higher moral authority. You know, if you get a street kid who comes from the neighborhood, he does well through being a sports star, rock star, film star, businessman. Um, he may know a kid from the neighborhood who's just stolen a $10 million Picasso. And he might think, well, OK, I'd rather give a million dollars to him and I'll hang it on my wall because it's not one that's hit the headlines all over the world. And at the time, it wouldn't have done anyway. Um, and also, if that billionaire goes to a gallery and spends $10 million on a Picasso, as I say, he walks out the door and it's only worth $2 million because of the markup, the profit the gallery wants. You see, and sometimes, you know, and sometimes collectors don't, um, don't appreciate that. I mean, one of the most famous collectors, John Paul Getty, you know, the founder of the Getty Museum in Malibu, he was a stickler for having a deal. He'd go to a gallery and, he'd, and they'd say, I want $10 million for this Cezanne. And he'd say, yes, but the trade value is only $2 million. I'll give you $2 million, 200,000, 10% on. And they'd say, no, 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 no. But he would keep on and he may buy it for, say, $3 million. But someone else would go in and pay the $10 million and would lose 80% of that straight away. And there's also the mystique of having a trophy, having something someone else hasn't got. You know, um, the fact of, you know, an iconic artwork. And it's only recently that that can be tracked down. It's called, you know... Don't ask, don't tell is used in the military. Well, don't ask, don't tell is also used in the art industry. You know, um, you know, don't ask the provenance of this painting and I won't tell you. So you can turn the blind eye. And then if you, if, if you get caught, if, it, if it's been, uh, uh, found out it's stolen, you say you didn't know. And then I can say I didn't know. Right. Now, did did the FBI ever formally question Steven Spielberg for his possession of Russian schoolroom? They may have done out of ego, but I think probably procedurally they they would have dealt with one of his um, lawyers or one of his um, one of uh, the people that worked for him. I mean, they may have wanted to just pop their head round the door of the office and uh, shake his hand. I don't know. I mean, uh, who knows? Um, um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's um, it's only one of many cases. I mean, that was a chance. I mean, at most of the time that. It, 
it's normally when the uh, when people die and their estates are um, valued um, that say something could come up as being stolen and we don't get to find out the actual truth, like the Adlers. You know, but I mean, G Giovanni Versace, the world famous fashion designer, when he was murdered in Miami, um, his lawyers went through his estate and they started to put stuff in auction to sell. And there was numerous items that f were found out to have been stolen across Europe. There was a big painting. There was some other stuff. OK, but obviously, Mr. Versace wasn't there to actually explain how he bought them or where he got them. But on the other hand, we had the pop singer, the world pop singer, Boy George. He purchased an icon from a London dealer in North London that had been stolen from a, a church in northern Cyprus during the Turkish, um, the Turkish Greek Cypriot War of 1974. And he had it hanging on the wall in his house. And when there was a publicity shot published in a newspaper, someone spotted it and said that that's stolen. So he was informed that it was stolen and obviously took the decision to personally hand it back to the church in northern Cyprus at a photo op, which was mutually beneficial to all uh, to, to everyone concerned. But if it hadn't appeared in that photograph of Boy George in his home, it would still be hanging there now. Interesting. Yeah. Um, now, what happens in the in the case of Versace when uh, there's several paintings that are found in his, uh, well, I guess his late possession, and they're supposed to be auctioned off, but if they were stolen to begin with, I, what happens? They either went back to the victim, the victim's family, or to the insurance company if they paid out an insurance claim. And then they may have been further, they may have been sold on or whatever happened on, on those things, you know. Um, but then you can move over into the looted art where Dr. No at the moment is a singular human being. But there's also what I call a Dr. No government. That's interesting. A Dr. No government are people like the Nazis, obviously, because they looted Europe for all the artworks. But I would go further and say, Governments across Europe, France, even Germany, Russia, Britain, right? They have got art that was looted during the Second World War that they have refused to hand back because they say there's not the evidence, there's not this, and you have to go through a whole long catalogue um, of procedures and panels and all kinds of things to try to recover blatantly looted Nazi artwork. But not only the Nazis... Uh, the Russians um, looted hundreds, thousands of artworks from Germany when they went in, um, and a lot of governments. See, after the war, the, the over one million pieces of artworks had been stolen. And what would happen was the monuments men, to their credit, who recovered a lot of them, but they would just give them back to governments. There's 500 paintings here to the Dutch government. Now, amongst those, there may have been 50, 60, or 100 that were taken off of people who were then sent to their death but the dutch government of hanging them in their museums and they're reluctant to hand them back and it's only when perhaps later on the descendants of those people have become quite successful that they've been able to mount legal challenges where certain artworks have been forced to be handed back there are very famous cases you know where this has happened getting back to the doctor no governments is this something where the Dr. No governments have specific agents or soldiers who will carry out specific duties to steal artwork, steal art art um, objects, or loot places? Is that their primary instruction? Yes. It's not, I mean, we can go back in history. Hermann Goering was the, was the art thief in charge of the Nazis. But also, you know, um, when when there's a war and you invade a country, one of the first things is to asset strip the country. Now, the first thing that you go for, can you guess what the first thing any conquering army will go for um, in assets in a country? The gold. Good man. Good man. You go straight to the central bank and you get the gold. It's what they did in Libya. It's what they've done everywhere. You know, um, uh, you, you know, during wars, the first thing you go for is the gold. 
Okay, then the next thing you do is you go to the national museums and you loot them, the museums for their artworks. That's why we see stories of the Second World War where the British government sent the whole national collection to salt mines in Wales for safekeeping. Now, what do you, and, and do you know why they put them in salt mines? No, please tell. Because no one's going into a salt mine? No, because, of, because it, it's climate controlled and it preserves them. Better yes. than anything else. That was that was actually going to be my uh, my 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 guess on that. We have heard that actually. Yeah, I I, I wanted you to say that the answer. I, yeah, but yeah. I, I was too stuck on a joke that's been rolling around in my head. Like we we're frequently looking for the opportunity to make jokes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I mean, um, you know, the 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 the, uh, the German style was found in mines. You know. Yeah. Um, and to be honest with you. Um, you know, there's a certain friend of ours believes that perhaps the gardener art could be held in a particular mine. Yeah, no, we've had that conversation with uh, with a certain friend of ours. Um, now, before we get back uh, into some gardener stuff, I wanted to mention you 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 mentioned Russia and you mentioned Vladimir Putin earlier in this episode uh, as potentially being a real life doctor. No, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And we know he's listening, so. And we also know he stole Robert Kraft's Super Bowl ring one time. So he's a pro- yes. he's a proven yes. jewel thief. He stole it there right in go. front of him. There you go. There you go. And and also confirmed is Vladimir Putin is very good friends with Oleg Deripaska, who is the multi-billionaire um, aluminum don, godfather. There was aluminum wars in Russia in the 1990s, and he emerged as the winner. And he has got tens of billions of dollars. Russo, I think, is his company. Anyway, it started when he was developing a marina project in Montenegro for $500 million with Nat Rothschild. They went into the harbour that was existing. They bought the harbour and they went out to a nightclub. They were on his yacht, Queen K, and they went to a nightclub. And in the nightclub, they met some of these guys, Serbians, who were called the Pink Panthers, who have been all over Europe robbing millions, tens of millions of dollars of high-value Petit Philippe watches, huge diamonds, you know, you name it, two or three hundred raids they've, they've done in the last 20 years. So they met up with these guys, and Derry Pascal bought a collection of watches, jewels and things, and he gave one of the um, watches to a European commissioner called Lord Peter Mandelson, Right. And um, Lord Peter Mandelson was wearing it several months later when it went wrong and he took it to a jewellers in Vienna to have it repaired. And when they run the number of the watch, they said, we've got some bad news for you. This was stolen in a high value armed robbery in the south of France by the Pink Panthers. So Lord Mandelson, uh, feeling rather queasy, called Derry Pasca, who employed the most expensive lawyers in Vienna, to just make the whole thing go away and the watch was handed back and everyone forgot about it. I got this from a, uh, from a Swiss police officer. Now, subsequent to that, Derry Pasca gave Vladimir Putin a couple of Petit Philippe watches also and some jewellery for Vladimir Putin's girlfriend at the time. Also, the mayor of Moscow, he received some Pink Panther stolen jewellery And he was arrested on some unrelated charges, but it was discovered that he had some Cartier jewellery that was stolen off the Pink Panthers. So that's the connection with Putin. But you've got the one that's in the press with, with the ring, where he took the ring. And just wanted to cut in real quick. Here is that story from Bob Kraft about Russian President Vladimir Putin apparently stealing his ring. Anyone that has a privilege of having one understands why the ring is the thing. I keep them in a drawer where I have my cufflinks. They're all in a drawer except for my third one. The original is in Russia with the president of the country. I happened to be there on a business mission with my friend Sandy Wilde. We had just given out our rings. I showed Sandy my ring and he said, why don't you show it to the president? And I showed it to him and he put it on and he sort of enjoyed it, so he kept it on. 
Yeah, you see these guys, and I mean, it's not a criticism, but it's, they come from sort of nothing, the streets, raw street kids, Oleg Deripas, all these people, right, these so-called oligarchs. And, you know, at what point when they become billionaires do they have a moral revelation? Do the Pink Panthers exist today? Yes. Yeah, 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 they do. But that, but that, what they become is they become much quieter and they, 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 they're picking their punches. They do one or two every now and again, whereas there was a period of time where there was about a dozen, 20, 30 robberies a year. And they've got so, uh, so much stuff put away that they can sort of live off the benefit of that. So a group like the Pink Panthers could be enlisted by someone like a Dr. No to acquire them some stolen artwork. Is that somewhat accurate? Yes, of course. The Pink Panthers actually arose out of Serbian special forces during the, during the Balkans War. After the war, like after all wars, special forces are left twiddling their thumbs with nothing to do. And so they thought of the idea of robbing all the high-value jewel stores across Europe and the Middle East and, and in some instances, the United States of America, although security is much tighter. Um, and they've done robberies from Dubai to Tokyo to Las Vegas, you know, and so and, and because of their military training, you know, they're in and out in seconds. 90 seconds is a long time for them. Do you know any of these Pink Panthers you could put us in contact with? Took the words right out of my yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, they're a big band. I mean, there's about two or three hundred of them. But I mean, I know some of the older ones. The ones may not be on the front line. The ones that will probably be the handlers of the jewels um, that the, 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 the actual point men, um, the soldiers, would actually go and, and, and steal themselves. But they're very, very, um, very clever. Um, there was a bench opposite one. Um, opposite one of the jewellers and they didn't want anyone to sit on it so they painted it on the day and then put wet paint on it uh, <laughs> you know a sign wet paint so no one would sit on the uh, and no one would sit on the bench pretty good now you sent us a, a couple of links about some doctor knows some real life doctor knows and one of them was from the miami herald and it was about a miami lawyer can you talk a little bit about that because that's a really interesting story Sorry, on what case was that? I've got so many cases. Baron Heaney Thiessen? The Passario painting? Oh, yes. Oh, oh Heine. Yeah, Baron Heine Thiessen from the Thiessen um, Steelmakers. Multi-billionaire. He's probably, um, he would be much more of a factual, real-life Dr. No than the actual character portrayed in the Bond film. Because the Thiessen family um, are one of the um, premier premier German families for hundreds of years, multi-billionaire. He lived in Switzerland at a huge villa there, had one of the, uh, had one of the hugest art collections in the world. He then married a woman called Carmen, who was Spanish. And then when he died, she had convinced him to leave about 7,000 paintings to a museum in Spain, which was going to be dedicated in their honour. Now, once they open the museum, checks on the, you know, the collection becomes public. And through that, they found numerous stolen artworks and looted artworks. And they've given some back quietly. But the Pissarro is about an ongoing case. Clearly, I know personally of a, of a high value art dealer who sold Baron Heine Thiessen, a stolen Caspar Friedrich, which hung in his office in um, his villa in Switzerland. From the inside information I had was that only one painting escaped out of Boston from the Gardner case, which was the Vermeer, and that made its way via G uh, Genoa port to Baron Heine Thiessen in Switzerland. So he, at some stage, had the Vermeer from the Gardner. That's the only painting that managed to make it to the high-value stolen um, art world. Okay, so you believe this uh, Baron Heine Thiessen uh, actually had the Gardner Vermeer in his possession? Yes. Subsequent to that, his wife Carmen didn't, and children didn't know what to do with it. And it's alleged that it was passed to another billionaire who was a friend called Jean-Marie Messier, who's a French industrialist billionaire. Now, uh, Jean-Marie Messier's story is that 
Police raided his Paris mansion and discovered a fresco in his courtyard that had been looted from Italy that was worth millions and millions of dollars. And it was and it was taken back to Italy. So and he was uh, he was also in the art underworld known as someone who would dealing or collect high value stolen antiquities, looted antiquities, high value stolen art, iconic works of art. And he would know what to do with it. And where it went from there, I really wouldn't know. It sounds like you're describing some sort of syndicate of Dr. Knows. Well, um, yes, well, syndicate or just friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, at the end of the day, if you go to a college um, and you come home and a friend of yours is an electrician, you call him up to say, can you help with the electrics? If you're a billionaire and you move in billionaire high society, your friends will be fellow billionaires. And then what happens is it's like bees around a honeypot. The billionaire's the honeypot. The bees are art dealers, property dealers, uh, investment bankers, all these kinds of people trying to um, feed off of the billionaire. Now, this has actually happened. High-value art dealer, legitimate, huge gallery in you know well-known capitals around the world, goes to one of their clients who they sell millions of dollars of art to, and they say, here, I was uh, offered last week a stolen Picasso for a million dollars. It's worth 10 million. But I said I didn't, you know, wouldn't know what to do with it. The billionaire says, oh, hang on a minute. I might be interested in that. So then the dealer would sell the billionaire the $10 million stolen Picasso for a million dollars. But really, the dealer's only paid $200,000 for it. So he th the billionaire thinks he's got it. Well, he has got a bargain, but also thinks the the art dealer has the art dealer has done him a favour by letting him have it at cost price, and that's how those deals are done. And also, we have to remember that most high value stolen art is not just paintings. Paintings are always recorded photographs. What about sculptures? What about jewellery? What about a piece of silver? What about a piece of porcelain? OK, pieces of porcelain that are worth a million dollars that are stolen. You never see those. There's no list of every piece of silver that's ever been stolen. So the majority of stolen art is still not recorded today. The only two categories of, of art that is re recorded today are paintings and, to a certain extent, watches. Those are the only two things that, you, you know, I mean, even if you go to stolen art lists, you never see porcelain, um, silver, um, furniture and other stuff like that. So we can get too bogged down and think, oh, why would a billionaire want a stolen painting? Well, he might not, but he might want a $2 million cabinet in the corner that is not so high profile as the, two, uh, the $10 million painting. We recently spoke with B.A. Shapiro, who wrote a pretty cool book based in Boston around the Gardner Heist called The Art Forger. And we got into a discussion about art forgery and I'm curious if you've ever met anybody in your circles who specializes in forging stolen pieces of art so that they can be, quote unquote, returned while the real thief keeps the original. No, 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 no. It's no, no. What I've come across in my time is that when things have been stolen, for example, say like the Vermeer. Yep. Right. Um, forgeries of that have been made and then sold to people as the original stolen artwork at a very reduced rate. So someone might say, you can have the Vermeer for $100,000, but it's stolen, and you know you've got to be so careful with it. So the person thinks they've got the stolen Vermeer, but what they've got is a copy, and they've given $100,000 for a good copy. Again, copies are, are much better these days. They come out of China and places like that. If you go back 20, 30 years... You know, um, it was very specialised. So you would assume it wasn't the copy. If you saw the Vermeer, you would think it was the original one. Also, people who buy uh, stolen art obviously can't cannot get it authenticated. So that means that there is, you know, there's always a possibility that what they're buying is not the original. OK, so that 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 leads me to another question. Is there an organisation that can do some sort of black market authentication of 
of stolen art like could could a doctor now take that to to this organization and say tell me that this is the the vermeer the concert yeah yeah yes of course i mean there are ways i mean you could find out perhaps through the insurance company if there's um if there's an inventory number on the back if there's something that says 147 b n z y x now if that's on the back of it only the, the original you know would have that on the back of it if there's like with the storm on the sea of galilee there's a very very old tear that's in the shape of an owl or it's in you know like a curve that was repaired many years ago and stitched and and is wax all over it so you know that's something that's on the back of the storm of the sea of galilee that doesn't get reported very much so if you had that in front of you you'd go for that and you'd go to look to see if it had that tear of course i mean but it's an oxymoron to say an honest art or antiques dealer because the whole nature of business is to buy low and sell high and to what extent you know, if someone goes into a gallery and offers a stolen artwork, it's very rare that the gallery owner would call the police unless it was something, you know, that, that was all over the news or something. Now, how about this story that, uh, that you sent us recently? It's about Andrew Shannon out of Dublin. He uh, had previously been jailed for damaging a, uh, a $10 million Monet. Um, but then he recently got sentenced to a few years for being in possession of a a stolen painting. Um, yes. Um, um, the pro- Mr. Shannon, um, I think, does have uh, mental issues. Um, and he's a renowned, I mean, he's a career criminal, um, stealing art and antiques in various ways, selling some and actually keeping some at home. Um, and I don't know whether it was out of frustration, whether it was out of some kind of um, Stockholm syndrome. I, I'm not sure. But he went into the National Gallery and and lunged a Manet painting and, and tore it um, and was sentenced for that. When Whilst he was in jail, the police raided his home and took away some paintings, of which some of them were found out to have been stolen. So he's, he's a classic classic art thief, you know, just, an, just a, a thief, sorry, who then specialises in stealing art as a living, as a career, but then obviously has had some issues. He got caught and had to serve a prison sentence, but then had some issues which caused him to damage an iconic artwork. Yeah, and, and he was just convicted in uh, November 28th, 2018, after a two-day trial. So this is very recent. And uh, he had previously had 51 convictions. So, uh, yeah, this is no stranger to crime. No, I mean, but but if you look at most career criminals, whether they're shoplifters, people who go into stores and steal things, people who steal antiques, uh, people, um, you know, career criminals you know, 40, 50 convictions. And some of the, some of those may have been some taken into consideration. You know, so, you know, again, if we work on the scientific principle of 10%, you know, he's, you know, he's been convicted of 51 crimes, but probably committed 500 crimes or maybe even 5,000. I mean, it's been scientifically, you know, backed up with fact, you know, that, that drugs, they intercept 10% of those. So now all of a sudden, if we use the 10%, you know, revelation figure, we can call it, then you have to multiply the doctor knows or the offenses by 10. Now, getting back to the Shannon character, he he actually took art classes. Is that is that accurate? He, he, he attended art classes, so he had some appreciation of the of the art itself. Well, I would say if he's a thief, he had to, too. But, yeah, the punching a hole in a Monet, Monet would, would uh, show anger or, you know. Frustration or something. Sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, frustration at the system. He felt he got a raw deal or, um, you know, I mean, who knows what was going on in his mind. But, I mean, he did that. He lashed out in that way, whether he thought the notoriety, maybe he was overcome with that. I mean, people act in extraordinary ways that sometimes can't be explained. I mean, you only have to look at reality TV, you know, to, you know, to say, you know, why on earth would someone do that? Or even look at politicians when they make a mistake. You sort of think, what on earth were they thinking? You know, I mean, when they were doing that. So, yes, I mean, I mean, in, in a state of depression, mental um, illness or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he's done this and it's, you know, he sort of kept it in the family, so to speak. It's sort of art related lashing out. I mean, I would much prefer him to have done that to, to a, a work of art than to another human being. 
But this this guy's Shannon isn't super wealthy or something like that. It, it doesn't seem anyway. Um, so if he had committed all those art crimes, it didn't really get him anywhere. Hence the oh, frustration, no. yeah. I take it. Well, yeah, but then again, I mean, you know, 90, 90, again, probably 90% of criminals who are career criminals, you know, they go to work, they get they get a few thousand dollars one week, they pay their bills, they go to work the next week, nothing. The next week after $10,000, they pay their bills, they go on holiday. And so, it, you know, their career is just, you know, you know, they're just about managing or they're the same as anyone else. $100,000 a year, $200,000 a year. It's like everyone else, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, page, yeah, yeah, or score to score. And at the end of the day, you get some people who are very mean and save every red cent, and then they buy a house, and then they and they go to jail several times, and they get a better house. And then when they sort of get to retirement age, they may have saved a million dollars or two million dollars. Then their children may take advantage of that two million dollars and may go legitimate or may get into higher crime. So that's the process that, yes, there you go. Out of every 10 career criminals, only one saves his money and becomes quite wealthy. The other the other nine just live score to score and spend as they, you know, live as they spend and spend as they live. Or some of them turn, turn into liaisons between the criminal world and the, the, uh, the law enforcement and the owners of the original artwork. What do you have on your plate right now? Do you have any current cases that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, as I say, there's um, these paintings from Eastern Europe. There are all the usual suspects of all the usual cases. There's a couple of cases gone on in the UK. Some people tried to steal a copy of the Magna Carta. They failed in that. And then a couple of weeks later, another gang stole uh, the Portland Tiara, which is a diamond-encrusted crown, um, which is worth millions of dollars. Um, and so, that, you know, that, 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 you know, it's just it's just what's happening at the, the time. Obviously, for me, my main focus is on the Gardner case to try to get some progress. You know, is to try to get, um, you know, trying to, you know, we've been stuck in neutral. You know, and at the end of the day, we need to actually go forward with this. And as I say, it's not a criticism of Anthony Amore. He's a good friend of mine, Anthony. Um, but we lock horns, we debate and we argue. You know, we go at it like cat and dog. But, we, you know, we still remain friends, but we have a difference of opinion. And he's been in the job 13 years now. He's in his fourth presidential term. You know, if we're looking at um, <laughs> his time at the Gardner Museum in presidential terms, he's in his fourth term. And the only other one I can remember was FDR. You know, and what has he achieved? Let's be honest about this. And, and you know, and I've said this to him, you know, um, even recently. You know, at the end of the day, what has Anthony Amore achieved? Well, I can tell you, he's achieved two best-selling novels on art crime and um, a run for the Secretary of State's office. But he hasn't recovered any Gardner art. And the proof of the pudding of his job description is that he's completely failed after 13 years of doing the same thing. So my suggestion is not a change of personnel, a change of policy. Well put. Well put. Can't argue with you on that. You said that you had a son. Does he operate on the same uh, on the same uh, accelerator that you operate on? Um, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he, yeah, no, he's very, very active. Yeah, he's um, he's actually in the middle of his training to be um, an engineer. So um, you know, he's training to be an engineer. Um, a, a, you know, an information technology engineer. Oh, that's a that's a fine, fine fine line of work but he obviously takes an interest um um in the things that you know that, that i'm involved in you know and when we, and when we talk about uh, dr knows there are also people um um and, and it's recorded historically adnan Khashoggi, the billionaire saudi arabian that during the 80s he was friends with president fernando and imelda marcos of the philippines and they raided the national museum in Manila, and gave Khashoggi 40 Impressionist paintings. And Khashoggi dotted them all over the world, in Greece, on his yacht, and Paris. And at the end of the 80s, when the Marcuses were deposed, the, the Philippine government came after the paintings. Khashoggi gave some back, but refused to give others back. And last year he died, um, final, uh, he died when, in his 80s, last year um but again that's another recorded 
um, effort, uh, you know, a recorded fact of a real-life Dr. No. And I would assume that the people who steal these paintings know about someone like him, and they know that there's an outlet there. Initially, they would know someone like a, an antique dealer or a, an art dealer that, was, uh, that wasn't on the level that, that might deal in stolen stuff. Right, so that's if it's worth, say, $1,000 to $100,000, right? Then that dealer might know someone in the city who may deal in things worth $100,000 to a $1 million. Someone else might know someone who's in New York or might be in Milan or in London, Paris, who deals in things from a $1 million upwards. And so it's, it's a food chain, the same as any kind of business. And, but the problem the, main, the thieves have is getting it into that system. Now, um, you may get a $10 million Picasso that sold for $25,000 initially because the person who stole it is taking them, what, 10 minutes to run in, take it off the wall and run out again. So that's a good night's work or a good day's work, $25,000. They don't care what it's worth. Or, you know, it's worth to them twenty five, so they can go down the local pawnbroker. And he'd probably give them $10,000, $20,000. Then he would sell it on to someone for $100,000. And then he would sell it on to someone else who would know a bit more and say, hang on, I know a private customer who would give X amount for it. So all this fact, the thing is, is that the establishment, and I understand why, they don't want to reveal these things. Um, they want to sweep them under the carpet because they don't want the public realising that it's as organised um, um, and targeted as it, as it is. Yeah, that's a great point. You said that it's really difficult to get them into the system, but it made me think that it's probably more difficult to get them out of that system if you have someone with that amount of wealth and power saying, what, what do I have to, like, why would I want some sort of reward for this? This is what I wanted in the first place was this piece of art. So getting getting the motivation for somebody to take it off their wall and putting put it back to where they... Where, where it was stolen from, I mean, that feels like a, a very, very frustrating and nearly impossible task to undertake. Yes, of course. You have to try to, you know, there has to be circumstances where that person would be encouraged. I mean, you know, the FBI has got their ways of doing it. They set people up, um, indict them and then say, we'll drop the indictments if you assist in this certain um, other case. Um, but those people, but, but if the people we're talking about are billionaires and they're not in, in trouble with law enforcement, then um, then they've got no incentive. But also, you have to take, you have to judge each case on its merits. Now, the Gardner case being a unique case should be judged as a unique case, and therefore things that should be done that are unique and wouldn't normally be done. For example, saying the reward will be paid. Here's a reward price list and there will be immunity. You know, it's very rare that that happens. On rare occasions, it has happened before. The Turner case has proved that and other cases have proved that it's happened before. Um, but you have to separate the Gardner case away from all other art theft because you don't want to encourage people to think, if, I can, if that happens on the Gardner case, we can run into the nearest museum and steal a million-dollar painting and ransom it back. I would also like to say, you know, um, that whilst we can berate and we can condemn and even criticise billionaires for partaking in um, stolen art, purchasing it and being involved in, in the stolen art world, they can also be a force of good where they can contribute to the recovery of stolen art. And what we will co call those billionaire philanthropists, we will call those Dr. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>